Hello there. Thank you for taking a break with me and inviting me into your eardrums. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and this is episode number 455 woohoo, of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. My guest this week is Vanessa Riley. Her newest book, An Earl, The Girl, and A Toddler, is out now, and we are going to talk about so many things. We talk about reframing history. We talk about the fantasy land of historical romance and the overlap between her background in mechanical engineering and her writing of romance. I will have links to where you can find Vanessa Riley and all of her books in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. This episode will also have a transcript, which is brought to you in part by our Patreon community. Hello, Patreon community. Every pledge beginning with $1 per month helps make sure that every episode has a transcript and is accessible to everyone. Thank you to Garlic Knitter for our transcripts. And thank you and hello to Heather and Lindsay, who are newest members of the Patreon community. If you would like to join, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. That's patreon.com slash smartbitches. We have several new sponsors this week, and I am very excited about this. First, this episode is brought to you by June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game that several folks in the comments at Smart Bitches have recommended before. June's Journey is a hidden object murder mystery set in the 20s. You play as June Parker, who is an amateur detective investigating the mysterious death of her sister. You progress through the mystery story by gathering clues found in different scenes, and you level up by building and restoring a property where June is now living. There are so many different elements, but the heart of the game are the different puzzles where you try to find as many objects hidden in a scene as quickly and as accurately as you can. True story. Often when I book a sponsor for the podcast, there is an onboarding phone call to go over the ad copy and to talk about other details. And last week I had a call on my calendar and I remember thinking, I wish I didn't have this conference call because I could go play another round of June's Journey. Turns out the call was about June's Journey. So yeah, I really like it. It's really fun. I really like the puzzle challenges and I really like testing my memory with each round. I also like using it as a brain break when I'm working. I do a few puzzles and then I go back to my to-do list with a happier brain because my brain loves solving things so much. You can join 30 million fans across the globe and awaken your inner detective with June's Journey. It is free to download on your phone or tablet. You search for hidden objects and collect clues to solve a mystery. There are endless hours of fun with thousands of intricate scenes and new chapters every week. You can download June's Journey for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And if you're playing June's Journey, please let me know what you think and how you like it. I feel like I have arrived as a podcaster, because I get to say these words. This episode is brought to you by stamps.com. If you are like me as a small business owner, you probably ship stuff. For me, I mail out stickers, books, prizes from giveaways, and boy, howdy, does stamps.com make that whole process easier. And I know folks listening are authors and possibly have Etsy stores. So listen to this. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. It is a must-have for any business, whether you're an author mailing books and promotional items all the time, or you've got a thriving Etsy shop, go you, and you're shipping out orders, heck yeah, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Over 1 million businesses choose Stamps.com for their mailing and their shipping. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. And once your mail is ready, you can schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. Plus, with Stamps.com, you get discounts of up to 40% off post office rates and up to 66% off UPS shipping rates. So stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There is no risk. And with my promo code, Sarah, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. There is no long-term commitment or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. That's stamps.com. Promo code Sarah. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. I really enjoyed my conversation with Vanessa Riley, and I hope you enjoy our conversation now. On with the podcast. I'm Vanessa Riley, and I'm a historical novelist and a historical romance writer. I try and bring you engaging stories about the past in a present sort of sense. 
congratulations on the uh, release of the Earl and Earl, the girl and a toddler. I knew I was going to mess up those articles. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's it's, down in front of me. It is perfectly fine. I'm still amazed that they let me get away with this. Okay. <laughs> is this your title? Did you? These are my this? titles. Oh I my so god. Sorry. Yes. You have to keep your own titles. That's very rare. Very rare. And it's like a dude, the lady, and the baby, right? You know, we have right. an earl, a the girl, and a toddler. Love it. <laughs> so what is uh, what is your elevator pitch for this book? What, do, what will readers find inside this one? In this one, I think you are going to be surprised. Um, we still have a little bit, we have a mystery going on. We still have the antics of the Widow's Grace. The Widow's Grace, once again, is a secret organization of women who have gotten together to right the wrongs that happen, particularly to widows across England. Because once again, if for some reason your husband's family wasn't particularly happy about you marrying or they had other issues or were just in generally mean people, um, they could hold up your widow's dower, which was based on your dowry. Um, that's the income you're supposed to live on. And they can do other things. They could take your children and then you get caught up in the court of chancery trying to get them back. So it's it's this group headed by Lady Shrewsbury is, um, is that's what they're supposed to do. And her nephew is uh, Daniel Thackeray. He's our hero for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, he has recently been elevated uh, to be the Earl of Ashbrook. Daniel has very few things he wants in life. Um, he's, he's fortunate. He's a man of privilege. He, he has wealth. Uh, he's trying to keep his aunt out of jail. That's his thing. His, you know, he just wants to be able to go home with his dog and his daughter. Oh, and maybe a mistress. But that's a whole other story that he's looking for. You know, he's got to have goals and whatnot. But his, his real thing is there's so much scrutiny on him. He is a Black man. He had a lot of scrutiny on him as a Black barrister. But he's uh, one of Prinny's favorites. So people allow him certain positions, but he also knows the spotlight's on him. Um, and he's just trying to figure out how to be a great single dad and, and how to move on with his life because he's a widower. There, there's a parallel in that Daniel is only allowed to have the access and the privilege that he has so long as no one really gets in his way using the court system or any other legal mechanisms. And um, the heroine, she's only allowed to have access to, or, or a widow, any widow is only allowed to have access as long as they don't make too much of a fuss or make too many problems for the family, or otherwise the, the same mechanisms are going to be used to limit them as well. Exactly. I, I, I love mirrors and talismans as I write, and and that is a, a single mirror because Jemina St. Mar, who is our amnesic from book one, she's trying to figure out who she is. She's been given a fortune. She doesn't even know where that came from. And she's, you know, she's got men after her now trying to, to, to wed her. And she just, she doesn't want any of that. She just wants to know who she is. Who was she? Uh, she only has two years of her life. Um, and Daniel seems to have the key to this. And he's not telling her what's going on. Not cool, dude. Not cool. Not cool. And I mean, let's be real, there's nothing more threatening then now and forever than an independent thinking person with their own money. Exactly. It's terrifying. We can't have that. You can't be wandering around with money in your own thoughts. That's just, and and imagine if you had a a uterus that was not under anyone else's control, but your own. Forget it. Mm -mm. No. Mm -mm. (laughs) Off to bedlam with her. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She has to go. And you have packed this book with so much trope bingo. There's it's it's like the most excellent trope bingo card all in one book. You got shipwrecks, secret societies, women doing daring do, amnesia, more secrets, scandalous families, terrible families, working against your own moral code. There are so many delightful tropes being deployed. And I and I love doing interviews about books because I really like to deep dive into books, but I also promise no spoilers. So I'm not spoiling anything here. Mm-hmm. Did you have a favorite scene or a favorite trope that you deployed in this book? I like the contrast, right? So oh, there's yeah. a couple I do, you know, I don't often do ballroom scenes and whatnot. I I I, I kind of like to be outside of that. I like to, what is yeah. the world going on? Then what's your, 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 I guess if Regency has a trope of itself or a stereotype of itself, it's always they're in the balls with the gloves and 
dancing, dancing, dancing. I like a little dance card. Yep. You're totally right about that. Um, And so there's a couple scenes where Jamina and Daniel are in ballroom settings or in dinner settings. And there's these other things going on that I think to me, I found them funny (laughs) because once again, you're able to play with those contrasts. Um, But they're, I kind of I went in on the on the on on the this is the typical scene, but let me show you from their perspective all these different things that are happening, and so I think you'll get a different a different picture of of one this woman who's trying to figure out who she is. Society is telling her now you you're 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 wealthy you're an heiress you should be doing X Y and Z these are the things you're supposed to be doing. She she doesn't want that, and then you have Daniel who's trying not to make waves he's like i i get it i i this all this new attention please don't look at me i'm not trying to make any waves i just want to get through this dinner and so those are my tropes the the, the dinner ball tropes were yep. are my favorite and i will say you write a great dinner scene <laughs> thank you because dinner dinner scenes are great they're almost like they're like a microcosm of, of a house party or forced proximity. You have to sit at the table. You can't just sort of like throw your napkin down and storm out. That only works once. You can't do that more than once. And there are so many rules and sequences where the next course is coming in and there's going to be people in the room and there's going to be servants who might overhear you. And you have the code of behavior of the table, but almost like, you know, kicking the person next to you underneath the table, underneath the surface, there's a lot going on. And, and, a lot of your characters sort of speak in a, almost in a code. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of coded speech. That must be very fun to write. It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also made an interesting choice with this book. Again, no spoilers. That Daniel's point of view is third person and Jamina's is first person. And you go back and forth between the two. What made you gravitate towards those points of view for those characters? Because first person for the heroine was really interesting it was very um immediate it puts you in her body and and, you know like you said don't look at me I don't want to be he he has the distance of third was that part of why you chose those tenses yeah it was um this was a book that if I had done um if I had been tempted to write both in first person I Mm probably I I might have but there's to me there's there's a little distance and that is also playing into Daniel's character. Mm-hmm. So I want you to, to see what he's seeing. There's a, there's always this little gap. There's always this little bit of distance. But mm-hmm. for these this particular series, you're in the head and the skin of the heroines. You mm-hmm. are feeling it. And so they are the they're the primary drivers. Um, Daniel slightly takes over the book a little bit, but, <laughs> but the women, their journey, uh, their sisterhoods. This is this is this is their book. And so I'm you are you are Jamina in this book and you are trying to figure out who you are and you're trying not exactly to fall in love, but he's just too fascinating for you. He is trying so hard to not be interesting. But he kind of can't help it because he's interesting. Like he's really smart. He's a, in a unique position. He has all of this power and, and influence and he would really like to be ignored and move outside of all of this attention. Often it's a heroine occupying that space in historical romance, but you place that, 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 um, that conflict, that, that tension on the hero. What drew you to that for Daniel? It, it, to me, that's the way he, he, he's always, he came to me since the first book. Um, he, this reluctant hero kind of guy, right? So he understands what his aunt's trying to do, but he also understands all the implications of if they get caught, what's going to happen, how this is going to go down. Because he knows um, the, law, right? the law, He knows everything that about it. And, you know, there, you know, uh, the law can be administered in, in true justice or it could be punitive. And he's seen all of that. He, de- he doesn't know how to get his aunt to, to see this other side of, look, this is what can happen. And then once again, because he is a black man, he's seen how the law has been used to even further discriminate against people of color. So it's like some of these folks might do get the slap on the hand. Some of them might get capital punishment. So it's like he's trying to tamp all this down. So 
he's a very interesting character. Um, one of my favorites, I would say, of, of the books. Really? Because um, of this tension that he's constantly in. And he has the opportunity to do more, knowing that doing more professionally and socially and in society and with the power that he has is going to bring more attention to him, which he doesn't want. That's a lot of internal conflict that's very hard to resolve. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Now, your publicist, Jane at Kensington, who's fabulous. Fabulous. She's wonderful. I love working with her. Um, I One of the things that I love most about my job is the number of publicists I get to interact with because they really spend a lot of time with the book trying to figure out how to market it, how to, how to promote it, how to get people interested. And publicists often have the most interesting questions. And I always ask when I book through a publicist, all right, what, what, what do you think I really need to make sure that I don't miss talking about? And she says that one thing that you love to explore in, in your series is the multitudes of types of love. There's romantic love, but in this book, there's also parental love and the love between friends and the loyalty between these women who don't have any other reason to be loyal to one another. What are some of the ways that you want to, that you try to introduce that into your, into your books? Because there is a lot of relationships and they're all treated as equally important. I, I, first of all, I love Jane that she picked up on that. I love you that you picked up that. Oh yeah. Um, the, I'm giving you several romances in this book. Really? Yes, there are uh, many. Back in the day, back in college, I was reading these books and there was almost like a wave where the, the heroine was set apart. She was so different from everyone else. And so she's isolated. And then she meets this guy and then the her world turns topsy-turvy. And we're today, if, if the pandemic hasn't taught us anything, we're, we're part of a village and network. Um, when I've had a problem with something, I run to my girls. I, and there's this, this bond, this love that's there. And, and I wanted to show that. It's, you know, the, the widow's grace, if, we, if we're doing mirrors, widow's grace has joined all these different and unique women with different backgrounds all together. And so in this little microcosm, I show you that, that mirrored relationship in Patience and Jamina because they would, I feel like they would die for one another if, if, it, if that ever came to be. And there's circumstances where you can see that, how they would go forward and do for the other. And so to me, that was extremely important because women, um, women's friendships are bond. They are oh, yeah. so precious. And when you find those kind of friends, you keep them in your lives. And they, they're the only ones who sometimes, they're the only ones who can speak to you in your life and tell you you're, you're screwing up or, or <laughs> you know, you need to look at this from a different angle. And, and so I wanted to reflect that. And then another thing that you rarely see, at least I've rarely read about, particularly in historical romance, is seeing a father, particularly a Black man, being a father to a baby or a yes. child. Um, and just seeing Daniel um, love on hope, um, how she, this little child has changed his world and his perspective. Um, I wanted to show you that. Um, and then once again, you have Daniel and Jamina who, who don't exactly want to fall in love, don't even kind of sort of like each other in the beginning. There's just this, this overriding attraction. And then they end up falling in love. Um, and, and, and so these are the three relationships that you see in it. And I, I think they're all, I wouldn't say they're all equal, but they're all extremely important in telling the story. Oh, absolutely. Because you're very right. There are a lot of stories in the romance genre where the heroine is isolated. And I'm seeing more groups of friends and series built around female groups of friends, which I love. I mean, there's lots of dudes and brothers and we we joined a club and we we were together through this experience. We are, you know, comrades in this way, but I'm seeing more women in that, in that cast, which I love. And it it struck me that I don't think this is a spoiler because it happens in the very, very, very start that Jamina, when, when she and the other members of the widow's grace, she and patients, especially are going out, they're in danger. Like if they get caught, it's very bad. They're in danger and they have each other's back, like literally with a grappling hook and a <laughs> rope. And Jamina's like, please, why do I always have to be not on the ground? Could I please not do the things that require me to leave the ground? It would be great if I didn't have to climb a thing. What is she doing? She's climbing a thing. And Patience has, has her back. So they're in these very precarious, life-threatening situations. 
But then they also have scenes where they're sitting in the bed together. They have a really wonderful closeness. It must be lovely to develop that over multiple books. Yes. And and um, that's why if when you read this, if you read the first book first right. and then read this, you, it's you're going to have much more of a picnic because oh, yeah. you see this continuing relationship. You see just how that they they have they have con- deeply bonded and have gone forward in in just trying to make sure each one is okay. Yeah, make sure each one is 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 um, living their best lives or or doing what they need to do, um, and giving that that unconditional understanding. Yeah, because there are things that you know potentially could have been Jamina's background. That, you know, patients would be upset, but she understands the person that I'm a friend with now, the mm-hmm. person who I know now, doesn't matter who that person was. This is who I love. This is, this is my friend. And so that unconditional love, I, 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 it was a pleasure writing them. It's a pleasure bringing them to the forefront. And that's part of romance, right? Mm-hmm. Not just the uh, the romantic relationships, but the the fundamental message of romance is that you're worthy of love exactly as you are right now. Exactly. exactly. Which I, which is one of my favorite parts of it. There's also the, the parental love with, with Daniel and hope. And again, not a spoiler happens in the beginning. Um, he just has a child foisted upon him. <laughs> oh, you're black. So she hang on one sec. We'll be right back. Here's your baby. Thanks. Bye. Like that was the whole adoption process. Pretty much. And so that's, that's another fun trope, right? Uh, Because you see two people going down a hall. You see two black people going down a hall. You people sometimes assume that they're together. You don't know how many situations, particularly in corporate America. Walking down the hallway, somebody's two steps behind me. And then we meet another set of people and they automatically assume we were together talking or, or whatnot because it's just assumed. So I decided to take that on its head and, and I thrust that situation as to explain why Daniel now has a, a, a toddler for a daughter whom he doesn't know, doesn't know the name of. It's a very evocative way to establish his moral core for him to recognize, okay, I have just literally had this child foisted upon me. Here you go. Here's your baby. Thanks. He knows very quickly. He understands that if he doesn't accept this person, if he doesn't accept that this child is his responsibility now, she's going to have a terrible, terrible life. And he needs to basically step up or condemn her to a really awful existence. And so in that moment, he's like, well, I, okay, guess I'm a dad now. All right, let's go to Target. Like that's... Okay. <laughs> and it, it establishes his, his moral center very quickly. He cannot do the alternative. So, well, guess I'm a dad now. And he adjusts very quickly. He's, he's a very flexible kind of dude. Very, very, he's very sentimental. Yes. I, I hope that, you know, that's one of the things that, that to explain why he makes certain choices, he's extremely sentimental. Now in one of your uh, bookstore romance days, events last year, which of course was like a decade ago, you talked about how historical romance is like a form of historical fantasy, which I completely agree with you there. hundred percent. It is utter constructed fantasy. What aspects of historical romance have brought you to that realization? And what do you see changing and evolving in your own writing and in the writing of other people exploring historical romance? At one point when someone called any book, any historical romance, a historical fantasy, it was almost like a slight. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not mm. historically accurate enough, so we're going to call what you're doing fantasy. But when you think about that there were only 28 dukes, over 10,000 books, and I'm pretty sure only two were hot, right? Two were hot. It's so oh, true. Like 60, you know, not hot. No, right? not hot. <laughs> not hot at all. So certainly not walking around with their shirts open and yeah, tucked in, you know, and it, it, we're not even going to go with teeth. Okay. We're not even going to talk about just being able to have good dental hygiene. So from that perspective, everything that has a writer's imagination is historical fantasy. And we're giving you fantasy because we're kind of glossing over a couple things. How they got large things. 
you know, mm-hmm. how they made their money, you know, where their holdings are, colonial holdings, et cetera, et cetera. We're clapping over all that. Um, and just focusing on two people in a point in time that are trying to uh, maintain and improve their lives and hopefully can find a love that's everlasting. That is the hope. That part is in fantasy. That is a hope that I think every historical writer is trying to give to their readers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's just, you know, it's these different flavors of, you know, for me, I will find some historical fact and it'll blow my mind because the truth is always stranger than, than, than fantasy ever can be. And I'll just, it just evolves into how am I going to wrap this into a story? How am I going to bring this to my readers so that they, they, they say, wow, that is really cool. And wow, that's a, that's a great romance. That is something that is going to tide me over or help me get to that next book I'm going to read. Do you remember what historical facts you incorporated into um, an Earl, the girl, the a toddler? A toddler, yes. So several strange things. I, I recently got into plants. And when I found that one particular tree in England is the same tree in Jamaica, just called a different thing, the ironwoods. That is a that is a, a the, one of those tying things that can tie two people together if they happen to, to like this particular plant or tree. So that was that was fun. Um, and, and that's a motif through the whole book. Exactly. I, I, I'm a talisman. I, Sarah McLean gave me this this term, and I was like, Yeah, <laughs> talisman. I love that. I love that. Um, The other thing is many times when we read about the Prince Regent, Prinny, Mm -hmm. we always assume he's a fat, drunken, you know, uh, womanizing lout who spent all this crazy loads of money and then became king because um, once his father passed. There's another side to him. Um, He was actually very liberal minded. Uh, now, it might have been because of his quest to have the ultimate party that he was very liberal minded, uh, but he <laughs> actually chose uh, people of character, people with uh, great talents and invested in them. So George Bridgetower is one of them, one of the, the, the probably greatest uh, violinists of the day, uh, uh, Bill Richmond, uh, the, the one the boxer, the legendary boxer. He was he came to the party that Prince Regent had after coronation or during the coronation week. And he was one of the celebrated uh, athletes of the time. Uh, These are two cases of of black men that he has literally invested in their career, paid for education, brought them to the forefront um, and made them part of his society. Uh, You don't no one really knows that about Prinny. And I was like, I want that little fact to to come through and it comes through so Daniel is one of his so- Socratic mind. So uh, he's one of Prinny's favorites. And it's interesting because um, for Daniel, he knows that this the sphere of people who know who he is in relation to Prinny extends geographically to a certain point. And if he goes beyond that point, people may not actually know of that fact and that influence and that connection. And it wasn't like you could just, you know, text somebody. It took some time to get a message. So his 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 literal geographic sphere is limited even though his potential because of this favor and patronage is almost unlimited. Exactly. Yeah. The dichotomy he lives in. Yeah. I can do this, but only here. (laughs) I can grow into this, but I can only do that here. I can't choose somewhere else because this is, this is where the opportunity is for me because of this other thing. You have shared parts of the, of the audio book. Yes. And your narrator is exquisite. Bonnie Turpin is an incredible narrator. Have you listened? Do you listen to the audio of your work? I know some authors do not like to because they, they hear things. They're like, oh, why did I write that? I'm kind of one of those. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I will or will not. But I listened to her first, uh, the first book, A Duke, the Lady and the Baby. And she was phenomenal because of she's wonderful. all of the accents. So you've yes. different Caribbean, the Guyanese. I just say what that amazing um the accents and so i the snippet i cannot wait i will be listening to an early girl and a toddler once it releases uh because bonnie turpin she's amazing (laughs) also in the bookstore romance day 
event, I was talking to Amanda, who was part of that event for um, historical romance, that you convinced a whole bunch of people to buy an air fryer. And I'm and I'm curious, do you still love your air fryer? I love my air fryer. Um, okay. I mean, I'm thinking about buying one and I'm very curious about this. To. Sarah, you have to. You have okay. To. I just did uh, sea bass in it last oh. week. Oh. Yes. So you take the sea bass fillets, the mm -hmm. thick ones, um, and you marinate it in a very good white wine, like a dry okay. white wine. So you just, just for a, maybe about 10 minutes because you did the, the fish is very delicate. Um, and then you coat it in um, olive oil and spice and seasons. And then you literally bake it in the air fryer for about 20 minutes. Ooh. Real. Tender, juicy sea bass, that, that fish. So it's like you can, you can find so many. I've baked uh, cakes, stuffing, you name it, in the air fryer. <laughs> wow. Okay, I think you've convinced me. Because you've you had this, be. it's been like a, a major appliance for your quarantines, right? It doesn't heat up the whole house because, you know, you crank the oven up. Yeah, and it's hot. It's hot. It's, it's like a chore, right? It's, yeah. It's a little air fryer thing. It's all, you know. And oh. there's nothing better to reheat McDonald's French fries. Oh, now you're speaking my language. Mm. McDonald's French fries. Because, you know, you can't fryer. microwave McDonald's French fries. No, you either have to refry them or, or toast them just right. And even then it's easy to go too far. Air fryer. Really? Yes. Huh. Perfect. Perfect. Do you have any recipes that you make every time? Like, okay, air fryer, I'm going to do this one thing. Um, uh, turkey breast. Really? Turkey breast. Turkey breast comes out juicy every time. It's it's almost a, a similar thing, but you're you're going to coat it in olive oil. You know, season it, coat it in olive oil. Um, Twenty minutes, skin down, flip it over. I think another fifteen minutes. Ooh, crispy Let skin. It rest for about five minutes. Crispy skin. Yes. <gasps> okay. But but the the thing is the meat it is so tender and it's juicy because you know yeah it can go on you right turkey it, breast can just dry out in like twelve seconds yes yeah it's not good really yes because I have been get the IR fryer you will be amazed okay I think you convinced me because I've been baking a lot of bread and I've been saving the heels and cutting them up to make stuffing and I was thinking I could do. Turkey breast and some stuffing. I did stuff. I did that. <laughs> really? I, yes. The other thing I had to do was make the cranberry sauce. But yeah. Ooh. I like this plan. This was good. My teenagers will be very excited. Very much so. Very okay. Much. Thank you for taking this side trip with me into air fryer land. Because I'm like, oh, air fryer. I've been thinking about buying we one. I should talk. We to kill the masses. Because oh. it's a liberating tool. It's a liberating tool. Your teenagers can use it. I love this plan. Oh, yes. Please. Oh, yeah. I'll come down at like three in the morning. Mom, I use the air fryer. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure when they do, they clean it out. If it, so that you yeah, don't you go clean in there it and start, Oh, I got to clean it up. Yeah, that's gross. Is it hard to clean? No, not at all. Good, that's good, why good. it's like, really, really, you forgot? Really? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't take much effort. Could you get on with it, please? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, I'll, I'll go back to being a professional, semi-professional podcaster, air fryer detour, but thank you, because I think I need one. Due to the level of inappropriate behavior of the trees in my neighborhood, this is the seventh take, but I'm going to get it this time. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do this. This episode is also brought to you by Iwi. Now, I have tried a lot of different omega-3 supplements, and I have to say... Iwi is one of the best I've used. The secret is algae. It's a whole other level than plain fish oil. And here's why I like iwi. Fish and krill get omega-3 by consuming algae, which makes algae the original source of omega-3. With iwi, you skip the middle fish. Skip the middle fish. <laughs> and the nasty fish burps, which is always a good thing to avoid. Iwi's proprietary form of algae leads to 50% more absorption than fish, krill, and other algae oils, the highest absorption of any source of omega-3. Because not all algae are created equal, Iwi's patented formula goes straight to your bloodstream. More absorption, more benefits. And to top it all off, Iwi's products are plant-based, sustainably sourced, and farmed in the U.S., if you would like to give Iwi a try, I've arranged for all my listeners to get this amazing offer that you can only get right here. For a limited time, you can save 30% on your first purchase by going to iwilife.com slash Sarah or using code Sarah at checkout. 
There's also a really cool video that it shows how iwi is absorbed by our bodies. That's I-W-I-L-I-F-E dot com slash Sarah promo code Sarah for 30% off your first purchase. iwilife.com slash Sarah promo code Sarah. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration's product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yes, I did it! I didn't cough! The trees have been vanquished! And now back to our interview with Vanessa Riley. This part's really cool. She's going to talk about mechanical engineering and writing romance. I also know that you have a PhD in mechanical engineering, which is very, very cool. And I know that like romance land is populated with many an attorney and many a recovering attorney. And my theory is that when you write legally, you're writing within a structure. You can make whatever argument you want, but you must follow the right structure for the document or brief that you're preparing. And romance is very similar. It has a structure and you have to work within that structure, which of course made me think of mechanical engineering. Is there is there an overlap? Do the skills in that field lend themselves to romance writing? I was taught very early on the secret to being a very good engineer was always asking how and why. So when I'm looking at the uh, how would this work in 18, 1814? How would this happen? And then the, why does this happen? Why you just keep digging on those, those, those levels. Um, that's part of the fun that I bring. Um, also the research aspect, because I was always researching something, uh, whether now it might've been material properties of some sort of arcane uh, metal or something like this. Uh, but that same ability to research, knowing where to go in the uh, library systems, knowing how to dig through uh, um, really old, very, very, very old books on, uh, from researchers who've done something similar in the past, with maybe with different um, lasers or et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that ability to know how to dig for answers, as well as asking uh, the questions, how and why have saved me in so many different ways and shaped stories. Wow. So what is your, what do you do as a, with the mechanical engineering part of your, of your history? Well, the twofold. Um, I um, worked a lot for General Motors and mm-hmm. um, one of my projects was to figure out why the high pressure turbine pump was noisy. So if you drive a Cadillac, if you actually made it out of your house, we drive a It was quiet. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, it was one of my fun assignments way, way, way back in the day. So you had to um, figure out the noise, the, the reason for the noise, why it was happening, and then how to counter it. Exactly. And it was oh, cool. It was one of those fun assignments where um, I had to go and watch the people. And this is another skill. I had to go watch people because, like, I ran all the formulas. Every like this doesn't make sense. But when you map it out, you see these particular pumps are coming from one shift. Mm-hmm. And so then you go to that shift and you watch them do it. And you realize they they were crimping the housings on the, the pump too tightly. Uh-huh. So they, they, you know, at the, that point in time, the uh, it was because it was a new product. Those levels of tolerances hadn't been set. So if you cramp it too tightly, it's going to scrape in the housings and it makes more noise. So once again, once they, they set the tolerance level, the problem went away. But it was you you couldn't look at the data and say, what's the problem? You literally had to go and watch the production and watch how they're doing it. Um, and that made the difference. So the that ability to learn about observing nature, observing people, you know, came very early on. And, and that was part of my engineering process. Wow. And to relate that to romance. If you if you need to figure out, well, you guys want to be together. Why aren't you together? Or you you can't be together. Why can't you be together? And how do we fix that? It's a similar problem solving step, right? Very similar. And then just I when I when I, I we talked about inhabiting the skin. Well, if you're inhabiting somebody's skin, you're looking at the the whys, the hows. You're feeling it, right? And you're observing, you know, how they're going about their lives and and what they're doing. So that that ability to try and be a keen observer to bring that to the characters so that you feel like you're there and you feel like you're walking through the halls and you feel like you're putting on these clothes and you're having these discussions with these other people. And then once again, always, how, how would they do that? Why would they do that? These are key questions that are always tumbling in my mind. And I, I, I thank my engineering background for that. So basically, you're, you're, you're doing a deep dive into the mechanics of romantic entanglement. Of course. <laughs> 
Very cool. I love it. I love it. Now, I've also seen your posts and your news about your next book. Can I ask you about your next book? Because I know you're working on this one, but can I ask you about the next one about Island Queen? Um, The thread at the top of your Twitter profile, you have the cover, which is wow. And then you have the narrator. Wow. And then I, I, how excited are you about this? Because that series of reveals, I I almost had to put my head between my knees. Like, that's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm excited. Um, I've, it's almost like I have been writing Dorothy's story forever. Mm-hmm. There's, there's pieces of her, this, this woman who was bold, who lived differently than we all expected of the times in every single one of my books. And so to be able to tell her story to the world is so exciting because she lived a crazy life. I'm going to just put it out there. She lived in a, a phenomenal, crazy life. And so to it's a privilege to be able to tell her story. And it comes out in July. Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, I literally found her by finding one of those historical nuggets. I found a cartoon of Prince William Henry, aka future William the Fourth, mm-hmm. in bed with a black woman in a hammock. And the, it's by the cartoonist Gilroy. Um, ne- t- typically during these, this time frame from 1750-ish to 1820, when they drew Black women in these cartoons, these editorial cartoons, they made garish features, big behinds, all these sorts of things, just because they're part of the joke. But this woman is drawn beautifully. Um, and when she's drawn beautifully, She's not part of the joke. They're tattling on the prince. They're telling a truth in the story. And as I kept researching to find this person, I found the Sailor King, who's the, the only um, only one of the kings at this point in time with a military background. Right. It goes to the West Indies and he's in Dominica and he's dancing in the halls with this woman called Dorothy Kerwin. And I just keep digging and digging and digging. And I find this incredible life that has been hidden away. And so once again, this woman comes from enslavement. She buys her freedom, the freedom of her her family. And then she goes on to build businesses across the islands until she becomes one of the wealthiest women in the Caribbean. And she is always at this point where she's looking at her children. How do I save them? How do I make sure they have the best life? But then she's looking at her sisters, her other women who are just like her, three women of color who are, are being oppressed by the colonial legislator. How do I save them? And so she makes a decision to do something that ends up saving generational wealth within these women's families. Um, and so her story needs to be told. So this is historical biographical fiction. Yes. I think I have those adjectives in the right word. Biographical, yes. historical fiction. So it's historical fiction, but it is based very much on a real person. Very much so. Um, with whenever you're you're doing these these research, you I call them signposts. You'll find a lease here. You'll find a uh, birth certificate or, or a search, you know, some sort of uh, record in the church about the baptism or something mm-hmm. like this. You'll find wills, and then you have to stitch all these pieces together to tell yeah. a story. How you get from piece to piece becomes part of your imagination of, of, of how to do it. But then you once again, you have these signposts, you know where she was, you know, children potentially might know fathers, maybe not. <laughs> but you have to stitch this together. And, and I, I think that um, I have done a job that's going to show you a different picture of the level of access that women of color had during this time frame, or were able to achieve, because yeah. you know we live in a world of no's, no this couldn't have happened, no this was not the possibility, but tr- history or uh, is always surprising. The true facts of what happened are always more surprising and beyond our comprehension. And so, I, once again, it's a pleasure to be able to tell her story. Alan Queen comes out July sixth. It's, it's my first hardcover. Oh, that's exciting. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. So I'm very excited. And and it sounds like basically what we were just talking about, about, you know, you find this piece here about this part of their life, and then you find something maybe seven years in the future, this happened. 
okay, how did they get from A to B? Why did they get from A to B? What were the, for lack of a better word, what were the mechanics of them moving from point A to point B and how do I reconstruct those? Absolutely. Because there there are choices. If I were writing the book as a romance, Mm -hmm. there are some choices I would not have made. (laughs) (laughs) Just put it out there. Some choices I would What were you doing? But showing you why she would do or, or the possibility of why she would make right. these sorts of things and how she would, you know, this situation happens. How does she deal with it? How is she going to go forward? How does she find the means? How does she build this? It's, the hows and whys of her life are where we writers come in and we try and, and imagine something that's engaging to take you through her life. Right. Um, and so it, it was exciting to write. Um I, very privileged to be able to to be in a position to write this story. And I think that it's going to, like I said, you're going to love it because Dorothy's a character. Yep. She's a character. So what did you do when you discovered who the narrator for this book would be? Flipped out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and and this is this geek moment. We exchanged emails. No. (laughs) He's absolutely, Adjua is absolutely brilliant oh my gosh lady dansbury for for those out there is yes. narrating from bridget and fame is narrating Adjua, and though uh she is amazing did you did you get that email in your inbox and be like all right i just need a minute just need to do a minute oh my goodness it's like oh, whatever you need i'm i'm here for you yes ma'am <laughs> whatever okay oh my gosh wonderful wonderful brilliant woman and the way she approaches um uh building the the narration amazing there's a really? side we writers think you know we're that's another level of the performance that you have to do i mean oh, you yeah. see it with with bonnie when she is is performing these various characters and laying out this voice to match the the character that she's reading it's it's just amazing so just seeing this uh on this other process, it's just they. I put my hats down to these ladies. These these are amazing oh, women. So hard stories, bringing these people to life, and it's like it's, it's like I heard in my head. <laughs> and the narration is so difficult because you not only do you have the story, but you have the voices, you have the characters, and you have to differentiate between them and not make it a boring or um, monotone experience. There's a lot of dynamic work that's done there. It must be incredibly wild to hear that come to life. Exactly. exactly. Amazing. Yes. So I always ask this question, what books are you reading that you want to tell people about? Absolutely. So I'm reading The Rose Coast, Power Women. Uh, the backdrop is is um, Queen Elizabeth and Phillips uh, getting married, um, but Power Women breaking codes getting in trouble, yep. all kind of stuff. Amazing. So uh, much of what women have done in history is coded, isn't it? Exactly. We talk in code, we communicate in code, we decipher code. Exactly. Yep. I wrote code. Yeah, we wrote code. <laughs> we wrote a lot of code. <laughs> Sent people to the moon with that code. Exactly. Um, catching up on T- Talia Hibbert. Yeah. So take a hint. Danny Brown. I kind of read a lot of things at one time. So I'm uh, Denise Bryce just came out with one wild women blues was, it was amazing. Um, yeah. Just, just scattered all over the place. Eloisa James, just a wild child. So it's just like, I am all over the map in my reading preferences. Yep. So you buffet your books, you read multiple things at a time. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's very cool. Well, yeah. thank you so, so much for doing this interview. I, I have had such a lovely time talking to you. Uh, before I wrap up, is there anything you want to make sure to mention? Yes. Um, please join my newsletter. VanessaRiley.com is my website. You're going to see all my social media there. You'll be able to track me on Instagram. You'll see my crazy reels because I'm starting to do those. All my different connections, even my special Facebook group um, that sometimes will get spoilers and little hints of things that are coming along. Mm-hmm. Vanessa Riley chats on Facebook. This is going to be an exciting year. There are more exciting things to come. Oh, I can promise you that there are oh. some really cool things to come. Oh, um, and I just want to thank everybody for supporting me in my career because you know it's it's been a long one. This this Earl and a Girl I think is number twenty four ish, something in that number. 
of books that uh, titles that I've released. It's heartwarming to see the reception and the growth of the audience and people looking forward to the kind of stories I'm telling about people that you don't normally see in, in these historical romances. So I'm just I'm excited that you guys are taking your precious time to read my work and, and enjoying it. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to Vanessa Riley for hanging out with me and telling me all the things about air fryers. Do you have an air fryer? Do you also recommend the air fryer? I mean, these are really important questions. I need to know about the air fryer because it might be the next thing I need to put in my kitchen. Sounds delicious. And if you're thinking, I need to put some of these books in my eyeballs, awesome. I will have links to all of the books we talked about in the episode notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. I end every episode with a terrible joke, and I tried to find a joke about allergies because that's what I'm dealing with right now, but I did not. However, I did find a joke that every time I tell it, and I've told it about nine times so far, it makes me laugh. So I hope it makes you laugh because this joke is ridiculous. I love it. Are you ready? Okay. Serious, pollinated podcaster voice. What is the smelliest kind of ox? Give up? What is the smelliest kind of ox? The butt ox. The butt ox! <laughs> the butt ox. <laughs> I love it. I love a good butt joke. Now, if you have any jokes about allergies, please tell me them because I'm not used to this much pollen in my life and um, my whole immune system is like, what can we leave? This is terrible. <clears throat> are the trees bad where you are? Holy smoke. Anyway, allergies and butt ox <clears throat> aside. <laughs> We wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find outstanding podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.